Would you please remain standing as I read today's sermon text, the 48th Psalm. This is the inspired word of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God. Forever and ever he will guide us forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you once more pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for you are a good God. But beyond that, we praise you for you are a great God. We pray that your greatness would be made much of, not just as we look to your word today, but as we live our lives in response to it. Help us to see your glory, to, to behold your magnificence, to, to know you as you truly are, and in response to worship you and to live a life that honors and glorifies you to the glory of your holy name. For it is for the sake of Christ Jesus we ask it. Amen. Well, so far we've, we've sung three major hymns in this service leading up to this reading of Psalm 48 just a moment ago. Uh, I, I hope you caught the theme that was kind of woven through them, how great thou art. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Great is thy faithfulness. And now Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Right, we, we, we at this point, I hope, have the idea. We're talking about the greatness of God this morning. 
we're focusing on this idea of, of God being great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It's right there at the beginning of the psalm. He is great. Now, it's interesting, this, this word greatly to be praised, actually. It, the English kind of, it sounds nice, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It's kind of poetic in the English. The Hebrew, it's actually not that way. It's actually a different word, a different cognate. Uh, you know, it maybe, maybe would be better to say great is the Lord and powerfully is he to be praised or, or majestically is he to be praised or, or strongly or passionately is he to be praised. And that's what we want to do. We want to praise the Lord in such a way because of his greatness. Because if we were to praise the Lord our God with all of our might, in all of our thoughts, and in all of our words, and in all of our actions, in all of our moments, of all of our days, of all of our years, for all of our lives, our praise would still be insufficient to reach to the magnitude that God deserves. So great is our God. So we look at this idea, God is great. Well, what does that mean? I mean, it's a word that we kind of use a lot, meaning different things at different times. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Or, or maybe something bad happens. Oh, great. Right? We, we kind of use it as just a throwaway word. Or, or maybe we get kind of toward the idea with it when we're talking about something we really like, a song, a movie, a, a meal, or a, a, a TV show, a picture, a play. Oh, it was great. Right? We get it there. Or, or maybe we're just talking about our frosted flakes. Right? They're great. Right? Tony the Tiger. You remember him? This this idea of greatness is kind of all over the place. It seems that this psalm in talking about the greatness of God is, is focused actually first on, on the city of Jerusalem, on the city of Zion, right? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And then it talks about his holy mountain, its elevation, it being the joy of the earth, this mount being it. But, but as we look at it a little bit more carefully, we'll see that that it's not so much the city that's really in focus, it is God. For, for Jerusalem or Zion or, or the city of God, whenever we, whenever we see this in the Psalms or throughout the scriptures, we, we really should understand that what's talking about is not so much a geographic place, right? What, what's most in focus is, is the people, the people of God who, who are to mirror God or to be a, a reflection of God, right? And, the, and, and whereas this was in the Old Testament times seen in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Zion, this of course is, is true of the church today, right? Because all the promises of God, these covenantal promises that God made to his covenantal people in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We who are the church are his people. Right? In discussing this psalm, Richard Phillips speaks of something more holy than the ancient city of Jerusalem, namely the church of Jesus Christ, which after all fulfills all that the city of Jerusalem was ever meant 
to symbolize and express and display. It's the church that is intended to display these things. The church, like ancient Jerusalem, was intended to be a reflection of God. People are to look at us and see God at work in us. And they should see his greatness. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king, we read. It's interesting, Mount Zion isn't actually in the far north. Zion isn't actually in the far north. But, but I think what's happening here, most of the commentators agree that what's happening, and it's kind of a, a translation, not, I don't want to say a mix-up, but, but just kind of the idiomatic way the language is used, that it's speaking about the, the north side of Mount Zion. And what was on the north side of Mount Zion was the temple, the temple which was the place that God resided, the place where he, he dwelt, he took up residence. And so it is that God no longer dwells there. He dwells in the midst of his people with us. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. All this is to say that great is the Lord. Great is the Lord and we should reflect his greatness. That's what the psalm speaks to. And so what does it mean that he is great? Psalm 48 points to a number of different things that portray his greatness, that speak to his greatness, that exalt his greatness, that, that fill out his greatness. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but I think we'll see in today's psalm that at least five things qualify our God as being great. He is mighty, he is glorious, he is loving, he is righteous, and he is eternal. First of all, he's mighty. We, we understand what this means, right? To be mighty, to be strong, to be powerful. We get, we get this. I think all of us have, have at least some sense of what that means. We see it in verse 3. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. We have been blessed in America by geography and by divine providence to, to not be a nation that is often invaded by foreign troops, right? We have some examples in our history. Uh, uh, we, we could think back to, I guess, the, the Revolutionary War and, and, the, and those early wars, the War of 1812, maybe, you know, fast forward to Pearl Harbor, if you want to include uh, 9-11, there, there are times that, that we've been under attack, but, but we don't normally have that as a part of our, our, our history as much as, as some nations would. Um, I think of, of when I was in college, I went to Hungary for a summer as part of a mission trip and spent two months there, and Hungary was a, is a nation that has constantly throughout its history been under attack, under, under siege like many different nations throughout Europe. Uh, you know, its borders have changed over time. And, and so, so like most of those nations, those older nations, in, in their main cities, you'll find, you'll find that there's a place that, that is, is kind of a fortress or a, uh, what, what we might say, a citadel here. And, and so it is in Budapest, the capital of Hungary. Uh, uh, Budapest was actually originally two cities. There was Pest, which was 
a plain. It was a very flat part. And then the Buddha was on the other side of the river of the Danube, and it goes straight up. It's a big hill. And on top of that hill is, is this fortress. There's a statue there, which is the Hungarian Statue of Liberty. And, and right by it is, is, is a fortress. And they actually made it into a hotel. And frankly, it, it's not a very fancy hotel. Uh, it, it's a very old building. Uh, it, it built, you know, I don't know, 100, 200, hundreds of years ago. Uh, but but it, it was at one time a fortress. You can tell because it's all, all made of stone. And it's that shape. And you can literally see you can literally see the cannonball marks in the side of the, in the side of the building. You know, this fortress that was built that was to protect those who were in it from outside invaders. It was a place of refuge that could be retreated to by, by those who, who were under siege, under attack. And, and it's actually called the citadella. And that's the, the Hungarian word for citadel. Right? And, and so we see here that that, that a citadel is a, a fortress, it's a place of strength, of, of fortitude, a place that you can retreat to, and God, of course, is this for us, right? We can retreat to God, we can find our safety and security in him because he is strong, right? A, a, a fortress or a citadel or a place of refuge wouldn't be much good if it were weak, right? If it, well, it's made out of plywood, you know, and, and you know, there's a couple nails holding it together, and, you know, we'll, we'll hide within that, you know. That's not going to do much for you, right? But you, you build it out of giant stones, and you, you put it up on top of a hill that's hard to get to, right? A place of protection. That's how God is. These people will come against us. We live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, you will face opposition. All the more if you are in Christ Jesus, because you have allied yourself with him. And there are those who will come against him, and if they come against him, they will come against you. And it's such opposition that the psalmist envisions in verse four. Behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As I heard this, I, I thought of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 has that same idea to it. You'll recall, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what was it that the psalmist said about that in Psalm 2? Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion on my holy hill. He speaks from a position of power, right? You, you might rise up against God, but no matter how many armies you rise up against God, no matter how, how many kings rise up against God, no matter how much force and power and strength you bring against God, he laughs in derision. Is that all you got? Right? We can take refuge in him because he is strong. Look what happens in verse 5 of today's text. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Countless commentators have, have, have mentioned that this verse 5 here 
actually, uh, I wonder sometimes with these commentators, you read seven commentators and one guy quotes another guy who quotes the other guy who quotes the other guy who quotes the other guy, you know, you kind of wonder sometimes if maybe you shouldn't just read the first guy and be done with it. But, but countless commentators have made this observation. These words here are similar to Caesar's words. His famous words, veni vidi vici, right? I came, I saw, I conquered. Similar in, in what they talk about, but also just in the, in the way they're phrased in their very, very terse, staccato-like statement. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's written in very much the same way, but here it is not, they came, they saw, they conquered. It's they came, they saw, and they were conquered, right? That's what, that's what the kings do when you come against God. Trembling took hold of them there, verse 6 says. The reaction of those who are the opponents of God is nowhere near as triumphant as Caesar's, right? They're, they're trembling, they're fearful. Verse, verse 6 goes on to say it's as the anguish as of a woman in labor, or verse 7, by the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. The picture here is an image of, of sailors on a ship out on the sea, and the wind rise up a storm like the one we had last night, but, but even more powerful, and the wind and the waves and being battered about, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the ocean on a sea like that, to have no place of refuge, and realizing that the, the wind and the waves and all was coming against you, and the ship you were on is going to break apart, and there's nothing you can do, and you are utterly lost. That is what it is like to go up against God. And so we find our safety in him who is of great power. It's important that his power is greater than any others because that's what provides our safety, our strength. God has made himself our fortress, our protection, our, our strength. He is there to be our help. But how often do we instead look to ourselves, our own ability? You know, I can work my way out of this. I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm able enough. I can accomplish these things on my own. I don't need to look to God. Too often we boast of our own strength, our own ability, when all of our boasting should be in God alone. All of our trusting should be in God alone. All of our dependence should be in God alone, for that's what the gospel is, of course, right? The gospel is antithetical to this idea of, of, of you can do it if you try hard enough, right? The gospel says, no, you can't do it. You can't accomplish it. You're not able, no matter how good you are, no matter how hard you work, no matter how devoted, how, how faithful, how strong, how, how much you give and how all of these things, you will fall short on your own. The perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus is the only righteousness that will suffice. So you must trust in him. Now that of course means we get less glory in the whole thing, right? We don't get a big, a big gold medal, right, that says we're the perfect Christian, right? The Olympics going on right now, you know, you have a medal and everything, and, you know, these guys worked. I mean, the work that goes into being an Olympian is incredible. These people have trained their whole life. They work and work and work and, you know, put in, you know, 73-hour days, nine days a week, you know, and... and 
It's, it's just incredible the kind of commitment and the work that is necessary for that level of success. But the gospel is altogether different. It says no matter how much you work, right, it won't be enough. The only gold medal that you get is the one wherein the glory goes to another. God's glory is the only glory that matters. Right? And that's the second thing we talk about with his greatness is his glory, his magnificence, his, his beauty, his majesty, his awe-inspiring wonder. Verse 12 tells us, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels. Right? The idea here is it's just the the weightiness of the beauty and the glory and the magnificent is awe-inspiring. You, you look at it, you just say, wow! I, I mentioned the citadella on top of the hill, Gellert Hill in Budapest, and, and, and it's really kind of sad, actually, because, because it's fallen into tragic disrepair. It's, it's, it's just not all that nice, and, and it just happened to be by the providence of God that, that I looked it up yesterday as I was just kind of putting some final thoughts together for this sermon as, as I was thinking about it and it being a part of it. And I saw that literally this week they announced that they're going to do a renovation project and, and, and put in a beautiful park and do a whole bunch of other things that, that are going to make it more glorious, more beautiful, more magnificent, as it should be, right? And they, people will come to it and be like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And that's what we should do when we come before God. When we come before God, our, our hearts should leap as we are amazed. For all of the beauty that was there, though, in that city of Zion, Jerusalem, the thing that made it glorious wasn't just the fancy buildings, the architecture, the, the neat city designing and the civic engineering, right? What made it glorious was the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is what ultimately made it glorious. It is uh, what, what was, was, all those other things were, were meant to express the glory of God, to, to mirror it, to show it, to demonstrate it. It was, it was the presence of the Lord that was actually the beauty that, that verse two says was it's beautiful in its elevation, right? The city was elevated, it was on a hill, beautiful in its elevation. But that was really meant to express the elevation of God, the loftiness of God, the, the glory of God. And so, so it was because God dwelt there that it was the joy of all the earth. Verse two, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Right, this glorious mountain. That's why really, when, when you look at how we do worship here at Calvary, right, and I'm not saying this is the only right way. Don't hear me wrong. There are other churches that do things in different ways and and we each need to make those decisions prayerfully, looking at the scriptures, trying to honor God and bring glory to him. But, but what we've decided and how we do it is very much directed by a desire for God's glory to be made 
made evident, right? And that's, that's why, for instance, this building looks like it does even, right? Why it has high ceilings, right, that, that, that direct our attention upward, right? Why we've got beautiful windows in the side that the, the light might shine through in the early morning, in the late evening, to, to present glory and beauty, right? So, so this might be a place when we gather here that, that we might be drawn into worship and that our worship service is, is, is set up in a liturgical style to specifically uh, be, be drawing us into the glory of God. It's, it's a more formal style than some other churches have for that very reason. Again, not saying that they're wrong, but just saying that's the reason we do it the way we do it. So a question we should ask ourselves every day, though, not just in worship here, is, is do we reflect the glory of God? Do we reflect his glory in our life as we, as we live our life? Do we exist as the joy of all the earth? Do we love God and our neighbor? Right, if we moved into a neighborhood and the neighbors came over and knocked on your door and said hello, and you, they came to the, you came to the door and introduced yourself to them, and and somewhere in the conversation came up that you were a Christian. Would they be like, all right, a Christian moved into the neighborhood. That's great. I'm not talking about other Christians saying that. I'm just saying random people. My guess is most non-Christians probably wouldn't be enthused about that, right? But they should be. We should live our life in such a way and exist in such a way that the church reflects the glory of God Right? It was that way at one time. Right? All the great art in the world came from the church, from Christians. All, all, all these great things, music and, and, and artwork and all kinds of other things, once came from the church. And we, we should seek to do things excellently and to the glory of God so that it might be that way again. We, we must move on. But uh, God's greatness is seen in the fact that he is loving. Verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. The fact that we can even come into the presence of God is a, a reflection of his steadfast love. But, but, but what is that? The, the Hebrew word hesed uh, speaks of loyalty and love that motivate merciful and compassionate behavior toward a person. It's what motivates God is his, his covenant love, his loyalty toward those who are his. Right? What, what did he say to Moses when, when Moses said, you know, you know who are you, God? I, I, I want to know who you are. What's your name? Right? Moses, or the Lord passed before him and he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, and the children's children, to the third and fourth generations. Great is his faithfulness. All right? We just sang that, and he is faithful to his people, and, and yet, who he is, it says that he will not clear the guilty. He is righteous, right? That's the next thing. So we have his, his steadfast love on the one hand, but then his 
Righteousness, on the other hand, he is righteous as your name, O God, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. I love the, the idea the right hand is a symbol of power and strength. So it says that, that this is who you are, this is your name, yes, but it's also what you do. The right hand is the hand that, that acts, that takes action. I know some of you guys are left-handers, and you know, but, but just this is the idea behind the language, all right? It's not, it's not saying you're wrong, but it is saying you aren't right, all right? So right-handed, he says, is the hand of power. That's kind of the language. Yeah, I see one or two of you laughed at that one. I appreciate that. Thank you. But um, in all seriousness, Job 37, 23 says, the Almighty is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. He can't go against his righteousness. He can't, he can't deviate from it. That, that which is, it, it, he does must be righteous. It must be just, right? And, and so these, these run into each other, of course, because we have this unswerving righteousness on the one hand, and the steadfast love on the other hand, right? And, and, and they run into each other because his people deserve to be judged. You deserve to be judged. I deserve to be judged. They judged severely and punished severely. So what does he do? Well, Verse 11 says, let Mount Zion be glad. Mount Zion, the holy hill of Psalm 2, can be glad because of another hill, another holy hill, Mount Calvary, where the cross stood and where Jesus was crucified, where the steadfast love of God and the unswerving righteousness of God came together at the cross where, where he said, indeed, it is so that I will by no means clear the guilty. Punishment must be meted out. Justice must be served. And it was meted out on his own son. He did not spare his son, but rather punished him for our sake. His son who took that penalty for us so that we might know his steadfast love, Christ experienced his perfect justice. And as a result, we are forever his, and he is forever ours. That's the final thing about his greatness. It is eternal. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, verse eight says, in the city of our God, which God will establish not just for a day, not just for a century, not just for a millennium, forever. That city is established forever, forever, literally forever. Right, it's that city that, that is not just a physical city of Jerusalem, not the physical city of Jerusalem that was there then, nor the physical city of Jerusalem that is here today. It is a city, actually, that is the city spoken of in Psalm 46, right? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, 
the holy habitation of the Most High, that, that city where God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved, that city that Abraham looked forward to that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, that city that God would build just as Jesus has said he would build his church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it, right? And as we read in the scripture reading earlier, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, right? So it says to walk about Zion and go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation, right? That you may tell the next generation. That should be our focus, right? It's not just that we learn these things for ourselves and we get to be with God forever and we're happy the end. No. It's so that we might tell the next generation. So, so, so these younger ones that are before us might hear the gospel, might know the gospel, might love the gospel, might, might rejoice in the gospel. It's not just for us. It's for the next generation as well. So that, that the promises of God which have been made to us might be received by us but then passed on to our children as well. That they might rejoice in this kingdom which is forever. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Literally, the word says, beyond death. There's no ending to it. One day we will breathe our last, and somebody will put us in the ground. But there is a day coming after that, when Christ Jesus will, will return with trumpet sound, the dead in Christ will rise. We'll be gathered to be with the Lord. And we will live with him forever. How great is our God. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. Once more, we thank you. And we praise you for your greatness. We thank you especially for the cross, for it is at the cross that your steadfast love and your perfect righteousness come together. We thank you that you have not just made it possible that we could have salvation, but have accomplished that salvation for us. We thank you and we worship you. We pray that you would help us to always remember the cross, for it is there that our salvation was purchased. It was there that you did the impossible. And because you stepped into time, we can eternally be with you. Bless us that we might live our lives in light of that fact. We pray it in Jesus' name. If you're able now, please rise as we sing once more the power of the cross.
but when you trust in Christ Jesus, I pray that you be trusted in him, that you know the joy of your own salvation. Jesus Christ died for you, that salvation is yours in him, as such death is dead. Death is crushed to death, as we sang there. The death of death, what a wonderful thing to know that life is ours to live to the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now receive the benediction. May the peace of God himself sanctify you completely and may you in your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to whom be all glory now and forevermore. Amen.